Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by my old friend Gustavo Highbaum of Set Fly Fishing. Gustavo shares his passion for Argentinian flyingling, how he and his team built one of the best outfitters in South America, and we take a deep dive into all things Golden Dorado. If you've ever wondered about chasing Golden Dorado on the fly, we have you covered. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And I'm excited to bring the business and consulting skills I've developed off of the water to the Articulate Fly community. If you're in the industry and feel like you're leaving money on the table or the day-to-day grind of running a business is killing you, let me help you find a more profitable and enjoyable path in the sport. Head over to www.thearticulatefly.com consulting and let's start our conversation today. Now, on to our interview. So, Gustavo, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Well, Marvin, uh, thanks for, for having me and thanks for, for all the bodies listening. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to have the excuse of talking fly fishing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Well, that, that goes way back early. I mean, <laughs> I, I think, you know, really like before actual fishing, I, I was. Uh, here in my not now my hometown by vacation back then i was only seven years old and was you know standing in the front of a store and i was begging my father to get me into you know buy me some fishing gear but the the curious story i really don't know where i got the fishing bag from but you know my father was was not an angler you know and he never has been i tried after later in the years to introduce him but anyway i have that desire of get me myself into fishing and connect with you know and uh, so we were here in san martin on a family vacation i really begged my father to get that uh that gear for me only seven years old you know this long long story short uh, you know a week later in a in a several week vacation here in the area of the lake district in northern patagonia i was in a sitting on a dock in the lake nahuel wapi in the town of Vichalangostura, which is only a couple of hours south of San Martin. Uh, you know, I, I was looking, sitting on this dock and it was this big, gigantic, like silver rainbows that that always cruised underneath the, uh, the this dock. There's still, today, uh, you can see these fish. They're probably all rainbows are ranging, you know, five to six pounds. And there were like half a dozen of them just cruising around deep water on this. And I got from from my my uh, uh, fathers of my friends that uh, I got as a gift uh, a couple of flies. I remember it was a big cursier nymph, and I you know and I had really a spoon gear to to cast with my little with my little rod that I that I got there, and I I decided I'm gonna let this nymph to go down. I didn't knew it was a nymph back then. It was just the fly I got gifted, uh, you know, and before my vacation and. I put it down and I, sh- uh, you know, and I kind of jingle 10 feet depth uh, that, <laughs> you know, that nymph and until finally one of these monster rainbows took my fly, pulled all the line out of this reel. It was a plastic reel, one of that cheap combos. Uh, we're talking about 35 or 38 years ago, right? I mean, uh, the reel got destroyed, the fish broke off, and that was it. And I was caught for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. That's very neat. So when did you kind of start fly fishing full time? Well, you know, it's, uh, that was seven then. And, you know, we continue after that. My, my father got kind of momentarily into fishing because he saw, he, you know, he watched me so excited. So he got into a little bit to got with me. We got a little fancier gear and we came back for like a couple more years, three years into you know, doing some spinning gear with uh, spoons and, and trying to catch some trout. But, uh, you know, as soon as I started that, I started to see more and more of the uh, here and there scattered because back then it was not a lot of uh, fly fishermen in Argentina. But I started seeing few enough to get me really, really trigger interested. That's what I want to do. And so we have that same guy that give me, give me, you know, originally that fly i got that fish into my <laughs> into my little rod 
uh, you know, kind of uh, helped my father to find me my first fly fishing gear. What again was not a lot available. Not many people knew about, much about fly fishing in Argentina back then. But sure enough, you know, we got into a, a little tackle shop that they have the basic of some fly fishing, and you know, I get me a rod, a reel, and the the, the guy who a guy that we we still in touch uh back then he was young a guy in the young 20s and he took me to to the park in my native town is by blanca you know in, a, in the atlantic coast out of buenos aires province and he got me a couple of uh you know hours of casting structure instructions and 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 i was launched to you know to get into fly fishing my my next vacation down to to patagonia you know, I I spent every single light day hour of my vacation with the family trying to get few fish on uh, fly fishing, right? So that's kind of a I was only ten years old. Yeah, that's neat. And so you know, obviously, it's kind of consumed you at this point. Um, you know, when did you kind of get the guide bug and decide that you really wanted to become a fishing guide? Well, you know that that drug that it was the first. Uh, you know uh, what I just you know told you. You got keep on growing, right? Like significantly. And I, I was a teenager, and I, I could only think about fishing when I was spending my my days in school in my native town on the Atlantic coast. I could only count days. Typically, the first week in December when the summer break start, uh, we came with family for two or three weeks. Till typically till till Christmas or New Year's and. We spent almost the whole month of December in the area here, exploring, camping, uh, and yeah. And uh, by that time, I knew I wanted to do something that allows me to to live fishing the most possible and to be on the water the most possible. Uh, and and uh, yeah, and 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 I saw there was people that de- dedicated to take other people fishing, and it was guiding, and uh, it was kind of a starting. To grow things, so yeah, I probably was 15 or 16 when I, 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 I said to myself, I wanted to spend my life, you know, taking people fishing, and I don't know how it's gonna work or how this is, but I'm gonna find out, and that's yeah, that that's a self inspiration into my desire of staying near the water that early in time in life. Right. Yeah. And so how did you break into the guide game? Um, you know, you're 15, 16 years old. You're like, I want to do this. You know, how did you get your first uh, job? Well, it's, a, <laughs> it's another interesting story. Kind of go, uh, together with the start of, uh, the early stages of what the company is, because as soon as I got off high school, you know, I was in college, but I had enough time in, in summer break to, to continue to come to the area. And I wanted to get a job as a guide uh, for that that summer break, and I, I went and knocked like a lot of doors and talked to a lot of people. The truth is, the industry of fly fishing and guiding, and especially international travel destination, because back then the the market of local anglers that would hire a guide was almost unexistent, right? So the only alternative to be guiding were coming to Argentina in search of a that trip of lifetime. So, you know, I, I wasn't really getting any opportunities. It was a way smaller industry of what's today. And, and so I, you know, I told myself, okay, if I'm not gonna, I want to be a guy and I want to do this seriously for my life. So I said, I'm going to start getting my own clients so I can be able, I'm going to be able to guide. And, you know, uh, and that's, that's kind of the beginning of everything. And I was my first, uh, days of guiding career, it was for the early stages of what we do right now, already getting my own clients and trying to set up uh, a trip for people that were internationally busy in Argentina for for getting into fly fishing. So, Yeah, that's neat. So you basically had to build your own job, right? <laughs> <laughs> I create that, <laughs> that own job for me because it was just not the opportunity out there, right? I mean, it's so different today. Like, we, you know, it's the kids that at first got a whole information of eye level and they can go and learn as quick as they want. And they, they effort they put is everything is out there to learn. But then they right away early in life, they get guiding opportunities and uh, they can get a great job very young. It was way different back then. You know, it took me 
it took me a long time to build like enough days to be able to go out and have enough clients to be guiding for for long days in a row right so to say yeah and interesting too right because it sounds like you didn't you know it's not like people that are here in the states that maybe go out to like wyoming or montana or colorado and they have all these people kind of showing them the ropes it sounds like you kind of had to teach yourself how to be a guide well yeah again it was it was not a lot of people doing it here and it was certainly a lot more unprofessional scene of what it was today the truth is when i got you know, the first clients, I and I wanted to take them into fishing. I really didn't want know or have any formal training of how to do that. I just, I just, it was just a long, long road of uh, uh, learning from their own experience and listening actually to a lot of my clients to to see how things supposed to look like or what the service uh, it was the desire expected. You know, to to get for. For an angler coming, you know, for uh, for an outing, and so yeah, it, it was a it was a long curve of learning process that uh, you know that it was accompanied with a lot of desires to do it right, right. So it was a big motivation of of getting the shop done right, and yeah. So then I, I in the later on, you know, I I have I was so fortunate that uh, I was starting to receive like really professional guides that that I had to. I was able to look at what they do or, or and 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 start to learning from there how you know a professional guide should work what's expected and so yeah a, a lot of listening a lot of desire uh, to want to do that for life and yeah and and then a team shop too because soon enough since we were working with groups of people coming I start with other fellows some of them that uh, they're still part of the of the business. That you know, we kind of start to build knowledge together, and uh, but basically a lot of listening to our own clients, right? Yeah, very very neat. Yeah, you were saying someone who's still with you. I think Gonzalo. I fished with uh, with him. Uh, gosh, it's been more than fifteen years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Gonzalo, it's just uh, about to turn forty years, and uh, he started. Uh, with me in the company when he was 21, right? And, and so it's been like 19 years of uh, working together in my mid-20s when I met him. So he's he's kind of a living history of what the, the company has been, and, and he's like a young brother for me. Yeah, that's very, very neat. And so, you know, all this uh, knowledge you gain from doing all these trips and learning from your guests, you know, what do you think the secret is to being a good guide? Well, you know, just, I still repeat that to my team all the time, and and when I interview a, a, a person that is, you know, a candidate to become a guy, um, first thing you gotta do is to love being out there, and and you know, to to be in the nature, to be in the river, in the water, and and then to just to plainly love fishing and be fishing your passion, right? And then the second, but but equally as important, you gotta love people, you gotta be able to enjoy, you know, see people achieving a progress or learning something new, like this new trick or getting his first fish on dry fly. I mean, if you don't gratify for somebody that that's doing that uh, the first time and it makes you to feel like you're doing it again for the first time, you're in the wrong business, right? I mean, uh, that's, you know, that those two together is what it makes that you are guiding for many years and it's not just a show, and gets you, you get just burned out of of doing it over and over, right? I mean, that's uh, the passion and enjoying it, and bear, being first a passionate person that love being out there fishing and fishing through the arms of your client. Uh, yeah, if you don't have that feeling, you know, you can do it really professionally, but it's gonna be always a benchmark, a benchmark apart from anglers that just do it as a shop, right? I mean, the guys that uh, just do, this as a, uh, do it as a shop, right? Yeah, and you can always tell when you fish with those people, too. You can always tell the difference. Yeah, I always tell my guys, you really want to have more desires of catching that fish than your own client, right? I mean, you're really going to... If the, the guy is looking at the clock to finish the day, instead of telling the client, let's take one more cast in that pool... It's something wrong, right? I mean, uh, as, uh, also, 
I mean, it, and it doesn't need to be that serious, too, right? I mean, I tell, I tell my guys all the time, too. If you I don't hear last on that boat that is next to me, it's something wrong on that boat, right? I mean, so it's all about having fun, uh, and and you gotta keep on focus on that. I mean, and it was also different times, God, that everyone will find the happiness of a fishing outing in in a different way, right? But uh, that's that's our job as a guide, right? To to find out what's gonna make our client happy, our guest, you know, to really. Uh, enjoy the full experience i mean and and uh and trying to recreate right or or, or to deliver and uh, be a facilitator of that of that that good day on the water yeah absolutely and gustavo what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide well you know it's a uh, the easy thing if people we get tell like wow well, how beautiful your office is i mean you truly don't have any 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 concerns in life because you're doing what you love to do. Like any shop, right? I mean, it has this up and down and and you get all kind of people. Thanks God, you know, and uh we are fortunate to to make a lot of friends out of this and make and 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 meet some fabulous people. But some days are long, some some days you gotta put up with bad weather. We we hear the way we guide in, in Argentina because the consumption of an international travel destination, the people come like uh, from Saturday to Saturday, you start guiding on Sunday, you fish till Friday, and then and then uh, you know it's a day off typically in today's uh, schedule for our guides. But Sunday you get a another full gang of, of of guys that are ready to roll again, all rested, and this goes on for like uh, six or seven months, right? I mean, so uh, it it could be tiring, but uh, yeah, it, I you you really. Uh, I mean, if you have the passion, it is a great job for life, right? I mean, we we have some some guys on on the team that they're in the mid fifties for thirty years, and they're still they're still passionate about it, right? I mean, you gotta have find the good balance of uh, of scattering or sparsing your season and not not overdo it, so so you you still are able to enjoy that day by day. Yeah, absolutely. And so kind of, you know, after you started uh, guiding, you know, when did you start Andy's Drifters? Well, you know, it's, um, as I told you, my first uh, guiding clients were already in the beginnings of the the company. You know, we were, uh, originally we were uh, under a different name and uh, not only till like 2009, I think I, you know, when... Um, not when I met because I met uh, Kevin Howell like a couple of years before that. But in 2009, I I make a proposal to Kevin to become partners, and together we kind of bring up the the name of Andes Drifters and started with the continuation of a operation that was started originally in 1999, right? So we were already 10 years of history uh, when when we started with with Andes Drifters as a continuation of that that original, you know, company and the, the early guiding days, right? Yeah, that's neat. It reminds me, I'm going to have to go grab the fishing hat to get the original name of the company. It's been so long. I thought it, uh, I had forgotten that Andy's Drifters was the second iteration of your company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The original name of the company was Solving Cross Outfitters when we started, right? right 99. Yeah. Yeah. It's all coming back to me now, everything, booking the tickets and everything. Um, <laughs> and, and so for people that have never been to Patagonia, you want to kind of give them a feeling for kind of how the trout fishing is different from, say, fishing here in the United States in Montana or Wyoming? Well, it's 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 a phrase that has been since I was a kid. I listened to it, but I still, I believe it's a fact, right? I mean, uh, many people have said through the years that uh, – you know, Patagonia, especially northern Patagonia, is very is very much like it was Montana 50 or 100 years ago, right? I mean, it's a lot of great water, great dry fly fishing, side fishing opportunities, plenty of only wild trout that populate all our rivers, big rivers that you can float, small, like, uh, pocket water, medium-sized rivers. We have great lakes. We have spring creeks. So a lot of variety of water. Uh, but way less people around here even when in the last 30 years the grow the it's a continued growing number of anglers i mean com- compared to 
to the Western United States, uh, you know, we, we still get into a day flow section here in one of our famous and uh, and and easy access rivers like the Chimawin, the Alumineo, the Kushankura, and we still get upset when it's a couple more boats putting in the same stretch we're going to float, right? I mean, so uh, that that's just to set a standard that still the, the, the fishing pressure for many places around the world here in the most famous area around San Martin of flat fishing in Argentina, still uh, the the presence of people uh, and the, the development of the area still a lot, a lot, behind of what the standards of many places in the United States. Yeah, it's funny you say that while you were saying that I was sitting there going through my head about the, you know, when you talk to the shuttle drivers, like on the Madison about how many shuttles they would run on a busy weekend. And you hear them talking about running like 60 or 80 shuttles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so although I will say I've probably had my fishing license checked more that time I was fishing with you guys in Argentina than I have in my entire fishing career. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we're our fishing rangers uh, typically are active and into checking on people and going around. So yeah, we kind of proud the way that the fisheries are are protected here. I mean, sometimes, um, you know, they do they do an important job. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know we'll get to set in a minute, but um, you know, so Andy's Drifters was around for what about fifteen years. You know, why don't you let folks know kind of how it evolved over that time period? Well, you know, it's a it's a long process, right? I mean, since from the original company into Andes Rifter, we were a, basically an outfitter that was a guiding service, and we used to and we still do prepare like trip itineraries to cover different fishery areas with different fishing styles, in different parts of the season, and we we make those uh, packages that include everything, so the people coming. Uh, from far, have everything resolved from lodging and meals and getting your fishing license, even supply gear when it was needed. So, but as the year continued to to you know uh, to go over, we find the need to be in control more in everything that it was involved in the process. So we incorporated the lodging portion and we start managing our own lodges and and actually with the experiences of you know being on the guiding service and. Knowing all the all the area here in northern Patagonia in in very deep detail, we kind of selected locations for our lodges. That everyone it was a location for lodging that it was selected to deliver a unique experience into a week program, right? So now the the locations of our lodges are just to serve a special program that we have ambition to to make it unique on its own. So we. Uh, in the current days, we ran three different lodges uh, in the Neuquén province in northern Patagonia, and each one of these lodges is served is is located to serve a unique uh, location uh, and reach specific fisheries that compound a whole different experience from each other. Right in between our three lodges, so like if you could do three different trips through the each one of these lodges and you will be fishing absolutely different waters and absolutely different fishing styles techniques and will be a whole different experience even when all of these are located in in northern patagonia uh, then you know back what actually you know a year after uh, we started andes drifters uh, with kevin uh, we went into a big exploratory uh, in argentina for dorado you know, I, I, I love Golden Dorado since probably was 17 years old uh, when I got my first Golden Dorado experience. So since the early, early days that I was guiding for trout, I thought, you know, people that come to Argentina got to get into a Dorado fishing because it's just uh, such a unique fish. And uh, and uh, so back in, in, in 2009, we did this tour fishing for Golden Dorado in several different locations. And and we met uh, who our partner it is right now, Andres Martinez, for, for that runs the, the Golden Dorado operation of the, the company. Uh, so, yeah, we incorporated another portion of operation, a whole different team, a whole different set of guys, their specialty fishing for Golden Dorado. 
And now, you know, we ran up there in the northeastern part of Argentina, in the Corrientes province. We ran three different lodges with the same concept. Properties that have been in place to, you know, for a specific experience in each one of the different fisheries that they, they, they are near from. Yeah. Yeah, very, very neat. And so, you know, you know, so you you did that exploratory trip kind of in the late 2000s, you know, what made you decide within the last year or so that you wanted to merge with Piranha on the fly? Well, really, when, when we met our partner then, they were just, I mean, actually it was kind of, you know, a uh, very spontaneous kind of build up because we, you know, uh, when we met, they, they were guiding in the native town near Rosario, a lot closer from Buenos Aires. And it was one day outing we did with them after fishing with three different Golden Dorado operations that we really didn't like, or we really, the, the people that we met was not the match that we were ambitioned with Kevin to partner with and to run an operation. And then we really uh, met with Marcelo Caligaris, which was it is for for years has been partnered with with Andres and and uh, and talking with them said I fish a lot on the on the Corrientes province and up there in what we call the the upper Parana River uh, and it's that's water is home from the largest golden dorados a- anywhere right I mean and so we said okay but uh, you know we we you are the kind of person we want to partner with and uh, so we talk. Uh, you know, we, we talked that early year and he didn't work hard for three, four years for personal commitments they have. And then Marcelo met Andres, they partnered together. And and, uh, and back in 2012, they were, we were ready to launch our our first lodge in what's today Tati Lodge in the upper Parna. And, and, and really, uh, you know, we, you know, we kind of grew together they, and they put their name to the company running the Golden Dorado operation it was Parana on the fly. Uh, and, you know, as, as the thing continued to grow, we were working as a unity. We were in charge of uh, letting international islanders know about the program. And we had kind of transition of uh, the know-how of how to run the business and build a team. And they were setting up the, the property, putting nice up there in Itati Lodge. And, uh, and, in, and really, we were working as a unity for years. And... Uh, and but but with two different names, so it was very confusing for people to know. Well, how's Angus Drifters related to Parn on the Fly, and 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 how we're going to communicate the uniqueness that we run all these kind of programs, but we have two different names. So really, we talked this for like several years, but when the pandemic hit and we were in the middle of lockdown, or right a week after we were locked down here in Argentina, uh, we started with the brainstorming of. What's the new name of the company? It gotta be because we need a an umbrella brand, a, a company name that represent all what we do and get us together. But it was really a continuation of what you, we have been doing for for the previous years, and that's where we decided to create a set fly fishing. What the company it is today, right? I mean, it was a continuation of what we've been doing since that day, right? Yeah, very neat. And, you know, so, you know, it's interesting. We talked about a little bit about this when we did the prep for the interview, but I was really kind of curious if you wanted to share with folks, you know, why you think uh, Dorado have become such a popular species for anglers to target on the fly. Well, I told you, you know, I got really, really uh, triggered and in, in love with Dorado when I was, you know, almost a teenager. I was 17 years old. Dorado is such a, it's a, it's such a unique species. A fish. I mean, uh, I was told people imagine a fish that is geared up on his jaws to have the power of a shark and the speed of striking as only a barracuda can do. I mean, the Dorado. You see the big head and big jaws. They are designed to eat on sabalo. That their main prey. And sabalo is a vegetarian fish that eats algae and debris from the bottom of. Uh, of all the fisheries where are habitated for 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 dorado uh and this sabalo is not a it's not just a fry or a, a prey fish it's really i mean it's a prey for dorado but they get up to four five six pounds right i mean so they are big fish and the dorado can get into a sabalo that is five six pounds and trim it in half 
in a couple of seconds, right? I mean, you actually sometimes you see them hunting team into schools of sabalos and rip them between two dorados, ripping apart into half the fish and blood is on the water. Uh, and, you know, they when they decide to strike, they are so in charge. They are the apex predator in the system that sometimes they eat each other or, or a juvenile or a smaller version of themselves, right? I mean, it commonly happened that you hook into a five, six-pound dorado and another fish that is 25, 20 pounds come and eat in half the dorado you have on, right? I mean, that's that's how much they are in charge on that that system, right? I mean, and the, it is such a... The way they take the fly, I mean, I tell people is dorado is, is not super technically demanding, but it's, it's mentally demanding. It's a game of focus, right? Every strip that you're going to take and pull your line, you got to be focused on when you move the the hand to grab the next chunk of line to strip it in because they're going to come as a gold lightning. You're going to see we fish for Dorado, you know, 95% on, on floating line and you see the fish coming from an ambushing, hiding position. It's just a golden light that grabs your line and just take it out of your hand. So every strip you got to keep on focus and they're going to happen when you're not expecting it and you, you got to keep your rod low because this is a strip set it's, it's pretty much a lot like a saltwater fish right i mean even when it's a freshwater species in a freshwater you know river systems uh but it is really undescribable it's just uh comparable to to nothing else uh, yeah it's an addictive game i always prevent people you know the problem with dorado is once you try it you're gonna fish it for for many many trips so if you are not Willing to do that, or not even come try it. <laughs> and so, if you're uh, if you're trying to basically imitate a four to six pound bait fish, you know, what do the tackle and tactics look like when you target Dorado? Well, you know how you're gonna Im- imitate a six pound fish, right? There's no way, right? I mean, that's I like to start describing the Dorado for their feeding behavior and the way they feed because. That kind of set apart the dorados and species. It's not an easy fish to catch, especially when you are going into sizes that go over eight or ten pounds, right? I mean, a, a eight ten pound fish is when it, a dorado reaches to adult, right? When they're in juvenile or a smaller size, in two to four pounds, they, they need to be more aggressive and continuously feeding. That what a rifle rainbow will do, right? I mean, they're eating all the time. When they get into bigger, as they are such a in charge apex predator they they will only feed in in certain windows and when the conditions are to eat big and go home right i mean so that's why you need a lot of focus into uh fishing for golden dorado but basically the the gear you use is an a weight since because of the these fish are ambushing and and uh, and they're they're in structure even when in some of the environments that we fish uh, the water is like crystal clear. You do not see the fish until uh, until the fish is into a, an attacking mode. Whatever is to your fly or hunting for for a natural prey, they are gonna be ambushed and blend into structure, and and they're just gonna come out for for your that nature of uh, approaching to the the fishing situation makes that you're casting a lot. So we only use. An a weight. We don't go to any rod that bigger than a weight because, in difference to salt water in the flats, where you are only casting when an actual fish that you're seeing, here you're casting like a lot, right? I mean, and so you're gonna have a big fly that it has a you know a big profile, but it's as light as possible because you're gonna be casting a lot and and you wanna conserve your shoulder through the journey, right? So a weight and a floating. Uh, typically, uh, you know, I, I say that the most famous uh, golden dorado fly is called the Andino Deceiver. The typical Andino Deceiver, it was designed to be fishing in the lower sections of the Paraná where the water is dirtier than, than any of the fisheries that we fish. So it had a, that, that original Andino Deceiver has a very thick collar of a muddler head with a lead eye. Here, the way we we like to build our 
long deceivers are a big hook first to start. You need a uh, a big hook. Typically, our favorite hook is a, a Gamakatsu SL12 and 4-0 and 6-0. So they're, they're big hooks to, to give a good navigation to the fly. And then there are saddle feathers, long ones. Uh, you know, a little bit of a bucktail and a little bit of a pico hurl, a little bit of bright. You know, it could be one or the other. And then a and then we we need to do that mallet head, but basically it's a very sparse collar over a set of uh, eye chain uh, uh, chain eyes. Uh, so it's very very light. Doesn't have any added weight. It is is heavy for the for the big hook and a little bit balanced on the head for for the these eyes of, of chain. And that's that's the typical deceiver that we will use. Typically uh, up to six or eight inches long so long flight but easy to cast loads very little water we don't use that typical big musky streamers that load a lot of water because we we're gonna be casting a lot and uh, uh and yeah that's a typical deceiver we then we use in some of our fisheries we use a, a lot of we use a lot of um surface patterns like mices and and large crease flies or key walks with foam heads that are kind of sort of popping or, you know, or, you know, giving the, the, the trace on the, on the surface of the water. So that's, uh, that's kind of the basic gear that flies and rods and uh, you use a tropical line because it's a, it's a tropical environment, right? I mean, so it has to be a tropical a weight. I mean, there are today, there are a uh, very good design of specific, specific fly lines with, with they have the enough of the, weight forward, uh, torpedo, that they're really a lot of help to turn over the big flies. So the different brands have come with special shangle or Dorado version lines that specifically designed for, for these big flies. But any any kind of a power uh, weight forward torpedo, saltwater line, it will make the work. Uh, got it. And so, you know, you've made it really clear we're going to be casting a lot, but, uh, you know, what does a typical day fishing for Dorado with set look like? Well, it is, you know, as I was telling you, we, we have three different locations that we fish for Dorado and the, the type of, uh, the type of, uh, fishing and the type of, uh, technique we use in each of the destination kind of set the day the day standards, we, you know, like in Itati Lodge in the big river where we fish for like some of the really biggest dorados on earth there, we are like from the rooms at the lodge, we are only like 30 yards to the dock. So you walk, you get into the boat and, uh, and in five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, depending where you're going, you're right into fishing. So it's very easy commute to get to be actually fishing and there we fish like very early in the morning, like we get into the water with the very first clarity to be able to cast with the really first light already being in fishing situation, and then uh, and then we come back for for lunch and and have a break on the by by noon with the air conditioned. Typically, it's, it's a tropical environment, and and then to be rested and full of energy for the for the sunset time because you know this this really especially in this fishery where we're trying for uh, we're targeting for these really huge dorados those those you know end uh, beginning and end of the day times are like the best moment where they're going to be likely to be active these these monster fish and uh so there it is it is in this stream of the days where we we really need to go but then when we go to the Iberag wetlands, we, you know, we've been fortunate, uh, like in in 2018, to be uh, to be selected by the Argentina government, really the provincial government in Corrientes, to be the solo outfitter uh, operating uh, in the vast, huge pieces of water of the land that Douglas Tompkins, you know, the founder of North Face, but now into with the rewilding project and his foundation, uh, he donated buy from private property and donated to the government to create a national park. And we were, uh, you know, we were selected to be the, the outfitter working on this as, as as the only operation in in this huge water system. 
Here you get into an access and go into a very intricated set of channels and lagoons and go deeper and deeper in the system. So we go out there for an outing all, all, of all day. We leave in the morning, whatever, 8.30 uh, from the lodge and, and we get in. Actually, we have stable camps and, and cabins that we have built inside the reservation. And you, so you go out for two or three days of fishing, overnighting, inside on the deep part of the of the wilderness and with no human presence so very different one destination from the other and uh, this past year we have had the third destination at Chetu Cabana Esteros which is another wetland system but this is a spillover uh, ramification of the Paraná the middle Paraná river section and it's uh, over 100 miles of water uh, that gets filtrated into this floodplain uh, area that is called the, the Isoro wetlands. Uh, we we have located Chetukabania Estero right in the heart of the Isoro wetland, which is by nature a big nursery area uh, for Dorado. I don't know if, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to extend me a little bit, make a pause here and, uh, and tell you a little bit of uh, uh, about the, the Dorado spawning system because it will make sense up there in the uh, to the whole story right up there in the itati lodge the first of the destinations that i was telling you it is the area where a big migration of dorados coming from the whole parana system come in the late spring and early summer for a spawn season but the the spawning it really happened in a way that is only successful uh, when there is a flooding or really high water level because the dorado you know, migrates and accumulates. First, it really, be before the Dorado, is the Sábalo that is accumulating and coming together in the middle of the river. The Sábalo starts spawning. Uh, the, the way they spawn is on the middle of the river in the in the current. The the female of the Sábalo gets kind of belly up and swims in circle, making a very low uh, noise, uh, like, croaking of frogs but very but lower and the and the males of a sábalo are kind of crossing their bellies and rubbing the bellies to stimulate the spawning after you know we've seen this happening you know we're talking the, the concentration of fish is just phenomenal it's kind of uh, like millions and millions of individuals we're we're seeing this spawning of sábalo happening for like two miles length of the river per probably over half a mile of wide. The Parna is the fourth flasher flow of water in the entire world, right? So it's twice the Mississippi, it's across sometimes four miles. So this huge mass of fish spawning in the middle of the river. And after we've seen this for a day happening, the Dorado starts spawning on the perimeter of that, right? And and, and sort of the same, same deal. Like the female Dorado makes like a whale. The really big, big Dorados are females and the males are are smaller. So these females Dorados are coming out of the water like a whale, you know, kind of have their body out of the water. And you see two or three big uh, male Dorados are riding their belly again, like to stimulate that that spawning. And they, it's funny because while they're their first uh, and main target for food, when this is happening, you don't see Dorados are crashing into Sábalos. They're so vulnerable in that situation, right? It is like something sacred is happening and they they respect each other and the reason they're genetically designed to do it that way because of reason right i mean they 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 they, they spawn and the eggs of the dorados are released and when they hatch in the middle of the river the fright of uh well they really they really get released and inseminated in the middle of the river but they need that flood level of water because they need to be drift into the, the flood plains where they're going to hatch and they're going to be able to survive afterwards. So instead of having a spawning bed, they're going to have to be dragged, uh, drifted out uh, to the, you know, the flooded areas of the, the side of the main river to be able to survive. And the curiosity, it is that this, the, the Dorado, when it, when it hatched the egg, the, the fright of the Dorado has a beetling sack, like the trout has a that it lasts for like 48 days of uh, that's it. The beetling sack is a food reserve that allows the the fish to survive without having to eat. 
in trout is 48 days, in Dorado is 48 hours. So they need to be quickly in these flood plain areas because they're going to start eating on larves and bugs and, uh, you know, some small organism. But as early as like two or three weeks old, they're going to start eating on the fried of Sábalo because they spawn in on the same time. And as early as two weeks, they become their main food, right? I mean, and so coming back to the history, the Isoro Wetland, our third lodge, is one of these flood plains, the, this big marsh area. It is a natural nurse for Dorado. So it has bazillions of Dorados that are growing in sizes between two to five, six, seven pounds. And so that becomes uh, the Chetucabani Asteros, the the ideal destinations for those that are breaking into golden dorado fishing to get, get into numbers and get trained with that strip setting. So uh, every one of our destinations is a complete different environment. Uh, a complete, you know, the fishing gets achieved with a, a very different technique uh, and, and a whole different experience from each other. And because of the nature of the sometimes unpredictable or changeable uh, conditions to the fishery and, and because of the behavior of Dorado moving uh, moving into the river system to different locations that sometimes is more or less available to be able to fly fish it. Uh, we, we have decided to, you know, to design our week of fishing split between two of these three destinations. So uh, we split the week of, in three days on one lodge and three days on the other. And we kind of kind of make the the call before the trip, which one of the situations we're gonna fish to hit the best fishing conditions. So that's that's the uniqueness of our program. It haven't really been another uh, Golden Dorado program in in the market that has that degree of flexibility to chasing what's really fishing best uh, bec- on the on the available conditions of of this region, right? Really interesting. And so, do you predominantly fish to structure, or are there site fishing opportunities as well? Well, again, this you know, this the site fishing opportunities anywhere on Dorado. It is when the fish are currently attacking or or going for prey. But in many times, when they're before that happening, when they're waiting for the opportunity, they ambushing and hiding. So you're fishing structure because of the nature they feed on. Uh, and it's very occasionally when you can side fish in, into a fish that you're seeing into a hunting mode or crashing bay fish or something like that. Yeah, got it. And, you know, I know that they're Dorado kind of spread out in South America and Central America. How is Dorado fishing in Argentina different from other countries? Well, it is the design. Uh, I mean, it's determined because of the, the the morphology of the structure of the rivers. like. The other big destinations today for golden rattle fishing is Bolivia and the streams on the Shango. And it really, this, the, the type of streams where golden dorado fishing in Bolivia is, it attracts so many people because it's so beautiful environments and reminds like everybody's in fly fishing or like a big percentage of people in fly fishing have started as a trout angler, right? I mean, and some of those uh, dorado streams in, in, in Bolivia they remind everybody that really look like a beautiful trout stream, right? But, you know, the the behavior of the fish and the fishing style, it doesn't have to do anything what you will do trout fishing because they are the rather, right? I mean, so everything that I described before applies into the smaller stream. And the dorado by nature, being that apex predator, it is, it is a very sensitive fish that can perceive anything on a stream. When you translate that into a small trout, size stream it makes the fishing in those pristine clear clear streams uh, to be like super difficult i mean like the the movement when you spook even the smaller bait fish or a school of sabalos they will make you feel you know feel your presence because of the disturbance that you are creating on the environment so that makes the the fishing even more challenging when you get into the the smaller streams and and also the nature of the mountain streams, it determinates a lot of physical efforts because there are big rock boulders areas and and you gotta walk and hike from from a pool to the next pool, right? I mean, all our fisheries uh, and the three different locations that 
that we fish in Argentina are done from skiffs. Uh, bigger ones that we have where we have a mean quota, you know, remote control, then, uh, and and smaller ones where we push paw and it's only one angler in the bow fishing on the Ibera wetlands. Uh, but it's all from the comfort of the boat and where you can easily ride back in, in a couple of the destinations to the lodge, but where the whole general experience is a lot more physically, you know, uh, enjoyable or, or a little easier physically demanding than than hiking up, up in the in a mountain stream. So the, the the main differences are determined by the nature of the geography where where these fisheries are located. Uh, got it. And you know, what's your kind of typical Dorado season? I mean, when does it run? If people wanted to fish with you, when should they plan to come to Argentina? Well, you know, it's because of the the nature of the three locations that. Uh, that we fish really, we we can fish for Golden Dorado year round, uh, and really with uh, with good results. If we, you know, if we are, you are gonna ask me when is kind of the best time for all the fisheries combined. We really love to talk about the shoulder season, and the shoulder season means like springs and 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 falls opposite here, but you know. That time of the year when it's enough warm, but it's not the middle of summer that gets too warm because, you know, in our fisheries in the middle of summer, it could be like fishing on the Florida Keys in, in July, right? I mean, it's humid and it's very warm. So, so the shoulder season still gives you that that warm temperatures that there are like because it's a, by nature a tropical fish, uh, but but it makes a lot a little more enjoyable in weather. And we're talking from mid-September till mid-December, and then from mid-late February through early May kind of thing. That's kind of a when the really peak season of our fisheries are. Uh, got it. And, you know, the great thing, we haven't even touched on this, but you've really built out your ecotourism and your hunting options because you've also got Wow Argentina and Andino Hunt. And I think when I fished with you guys, you were offering red stack hunting, but you've got tons of stuff and all kinds of outings, particularly if someone wants to bring someone who doesn't want to fish. You want to let folks know a little bit about those? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Some of our lodges uh, specialty are like uh, having couples and families because of the offer that we have right there at the at the lodges with a unique game of different opportunities and activities that will make the vacation for a non-angling person to be as enjoyable that uh, you know a hardcore angler, good. So so they're really really unique. But then at War Argentina, what we do is, is really design uh, programs that are tailor made and thought out uh, for for each of our guests to really have a unique experience exploring the highlights of the different areas of the country, whatever it's in Glacier Fells and in Tierra del Fuego, or visiting the wine country in Mendoza, just exploring a couple of days with great guides and absorbing the culture in Buenos Aires or seeing the Iwasu Falls. Argentina is a, is a huge country with a whole different game of ecosystems and scenery, right? I mean, you think about uh, Argentina uh, from south to north is uh, almost as long as the United States from east to west coast. So many people do not really have, you know, the 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 meanings of how big Argentina it is, but it's really the eighth largest uh, world uh, in, in territory surface, right? I mean, so it's a very extended country that you have a lot to uniqueness to see and discover, plus the whole cultural, the gastronomy in Argentina. We're very influential by the, you know, the Italian and Spanish cuisine. So eating and our gastronomy is a big part of our culture. So, so if you enjoy you know, the gastronomy, the culinary side of the, the travel experience, you know, you, you are going to get pleased in Argentina, right? Of course, baking the asado and cooking on the open fire, but baking wines, you know, uh, we have such a great variety of wines. And, you know, beside all these unique trips, we tried every one of our trips, you know, whatever is Golden Dorado or Trout, to be a culture and immersion, right? I mean, beside to expose you, expose you to really cool fishing opportunities. Uh, really, we try to, th that that fishing trip to be just more than just a great fishing trip, but that you get a little bit of that uh, culture of the country, 
from the food and the, and the, the wine, but also by bringing entertainment in. We have people that comes to dance tango and some of the folkloric music and uh, and play instrument and sing and yeah. So it's we try to build on uh, a lot of add-ons that uh, makes the the whole experience uh, uh, the whole you know trip a uh, entire experience, right? I mean, and so at, uh, on the other side, as you mentioned, we you know right now we kind of up the game. From you, you, we we have been running stacked red sack hunting since that early, as you were here, like uh, quite a few years ago, and we have now been uh, running our own uh, entire ranch that we manage for stack hunting, and it's been eight years managing this thirty thousand acre ranch, where we have an amazing wild population of red stack, and it really is a a very very unique uh, uh, program, and that that we have many people that that repeat and, and are regular in this uh, with this um, with this trip. Yeah, and you've got you've got waterfowl, you've got upland bird hunting, right, and you've got dove hunting too, right? Yeah, we you know we we right here in Patagonia where we do the stack hunting, there is opportunity to quail hunt. We have Californian. Uh, quail that have been introduced and they're well here in the area uh, for for many decades and and then we we set up opportunities to dove hunt and waterfall duck hunting in other in other locations of Argentina uh, and 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 doves too uh, that we can put it together as an addition of any of of our regular programs. Yeah, and it's great too, right? Because people have to remember that the seasons are uh, reversed, and so if you really want to hunt, but you can't hunt in the United States, you can fly down to Argentina and hunt and fish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The opportunities are countless, and actually, we try to give the people excuse to to come back to to see us with different programs each time. So that's kind of the the, the vision of what Set Fly Fishing and our other companies, you know, are. Yeah, uh, very neat. And so, if folks wanted to get more information about your trips and your other offerings, where should they go? Well, it is um, you, you can reach us at our website at setflyfishing.com, uh, or you can reach us and follow us on on the social media platforms and Instagram, especially at setflyfishing. Uh, each one of the lodges have their own Instagram. Uh, yeah, but uh, and you're welcome to you know to to get on the phone or you know or meet us at one of the presentations right we are going to be and we regularly are traveling across the united states and presenting at local shops and clubs so yeah so you, everyone is welcome to to come and talk about fishing we always like that yeah and i i suspect we'll see you on the uh, fly fishing show circuit in 2024 right yeah absolutely yeah we're already scheduled to do uh to do some of the the biggest shows, all the same that we did last year. So we'll be in Jersey and Atlanta and Denver and Pleasanton. Uh, and we're working on uh, on a couple more that, that they're going to be uh, closed down on, on the next few weeks. So, Oh, very neat. And uh, Gustavo, before I let you go this evening, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, I, I want to invite everybody that hasn't been for, you know, for a visit in Argentina you know we're very friendly uh, country with a high degree of hospitality, a very influential for, for European culture. So don't be afraid. I mean, it's Southern Hemisphere, it's South America, but it's a it's a very friendly uh, country that will receive you with a you know open arms and uh, where you will come to really build friends and memories for life. Yeah, and it's it's so easy to get to, like we talked about before, no jet lag, fly to Buenos Aires, transfer to the airport and fly south, and you're an hour ahead and you don't feel horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, as you said, it's an easy commute. It's a long flight, but it's overnight, and it's no time difference. Plus, you know, uh, what we do, actually, we have this travel, you know, agency department inside our own company that, that from the time that you start asking about what it can do this time frame what 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 the program that you recommend we're going to be a hand-on experience we're going to assure you have a hassle-free experience through the time you leave your home 
So after the trip and getting back home, it's you're going to be hands-on, accompany all the way in every single stage, make it very, very easy. You can travel light, we can provide you gear. So make a whole full enjoyment experience. Uh, very, very neat. And Gustavo, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this evening. And hopefully I'll get to see you on your uh, upcoming trip to the States. Hey, absolutely. Marvin, thanks. Thanks you for, for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk a little bit of history and, and fishing. So anytime. Thanks. Thanks to all the audience. Yeah. Absolutely. Take care. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.